Well, let me, uh, let me give you the names of several book titles. You'll quickly see the commonality in them, I'm sure. Uh, here's some book titles, all of which have the same word in them. The first one is, The Secret to Love, Health, and Money. If you saw that on a shelf, would you not want it? In your library, The Secret to Health, Love, and Money. Another one is Secrets of Closing the Sale. So if you're an entrepreneur or salesperson, that would be a good book you'd probably want to add to your library to help you find that secret that only that book contains about how to sell things successfully. The secret to mental health. Mental health is a common subject in our culture. Maybe it's a problem for you. That would be a book you might find some interest in. Or The Secrets of Sleep Science. If you have trouble falling asleep at night, some people might be apt to want to read a book like, like that. The word secret obviously is, is the common word in, in all of these uh, book titles. And it's not really uncommon to find books with the word secret in their title. It's not uncommon to find perhaps a seminar that's being offered at a fee to help you to find the secret to whatever it is you haven't currently found. Secrets that will help you to unlock success. It's like, where do I find hidden knowledge? I want to be successful in entrepreneurship. What is the secret to success in entrepreneurship? What is the secret to success in love or money? Well, while these books may contain some information that you or I have never considered before, it's actually false advertising to suggest that if you want to be successful in life or to imply that if you want to be successful in life, you somehow have to find some secret that you have to unlock some door and find some secret to success, some secret to happiness that no one's ever discovered before. As if for the first generation to finally discover how to have a love, meaningful, loving relationship or to close the secret of the sale or to live with, with mental health. You see, as Christians, we don't, we don't need to live our lives as if there are umpteen dozen secrets that we need to discover in order to be successful. When we study the word of God, we aren't trying to unlock secrets for you. We aren't trying to give you information that no one in human history has ever discovered before. We're not dealing in the realm of secrets. We're dealing in the realm of revelation. Revelation is God's word. God has made it clear how we should live. God has made it clear how we should handle our finances. God has made it clear how we should think, how we should conduct ourselves in our romantic relationships, how we should handle our finances, how we should tend to our own bodies. We're not trying to unlock secrets for you. We're trying to point you to God's revelation of himself. There's no secret path to salvation. It's obvious. God has revealed it to us. There's no secrets about relationship. It's obvious. You just have to read God's book. He's revealed to us how to conduct ourselves in relationships. There's no secrets about leadership. If you're leading, if you're influencing other people, there's no secrets about that. God's book, the Bible, has given us all that we need for a successful, meaningful, God-honoring life. And if you read the word of God, you will grow increasingly wise in your life. 
Now, as I mentioned in my preliminary comments, we are studying the life of King Solomon. King Solomon was the third of four kings that ruled over united Israel before it was broken in half by his foolish son. And in chapter two, we have a, an account of the moment when the torch is being passed from King David to King Solomon. And we can study Solomon's life, notwithstanding his failures in chapter 11, in order to understand how to live wisely, because Solomon was a wise king and how he conducted himself and himself in relationships and his priorities, especially early on in his life, point us to a life that is wise. And today's lesson on wisdom pertains specifically to leadership. Here in this passage, we will discover God's revealed principles for godly leaders. They're not secrets. They're not the best kept secrets in town. They're here for us in black and white to consider. And they've been here for centuries for various generations of people uh, to consider. So if you want to be more skillful in leadership, and all of us, I think, on some level do lead, you may be a child. And the lesson that you have right now is you're being taught how to lead your dog. You're being taught how to care for a non-human. And once you prove yourself faithful, maybe at some point in time, someone will ask you to babysit their children or to look after your brother or sister. You're leading someone. And then as life unfolds for you, you find that increasingly you're leading more and more people. You're, you're leading your wife. You're leading your children. Maybe you are leaders at work. Maybe you're a leader in the church. Maybe you're a leader in the civil realm. All of us at some point in time will have influence over others, i.e. leadership over others. And sometimes we might scratch our heads and think, what's the secret to successful leadership? Well, read the word of God. God has revealed to us how we should conduct ourselves in the broad strokes in leadership. So 1 Kings chapter 2, I would encourage you to uh, find your way there. Obviously, there's uh, the fact that it's called 1 Kings suggests, suggests there's a second, uh, another book called 2 Kings. And originally, this would have been one monumentous scroll that was eventually divided in half, primarily for the purpose of readability. It'd be rather difficult carrying a 100-pound scroll around all the time. So it was divided in half. And 1 Kings chapter 2, which is our subject passage, outlines Solomon's commission as a theocratic king. Now, you may be well familiar with the word democratic, meaning that the people, the will of the people, is communicated to the democratic leader, and the democratic leader is supposed to then enact the will of the people. That's the, the notion, at least theoretically, in, in, in a democracy. But Solomon is not a democratic king. He is a theocratic king, meaning that he is a king with a small K that sees his responsibilities and exercises his duties and rules in the name of and on behalf of the true king, capital K, God. So he is theocratic in the sense that if he conducts himself properly, he is going to conduct his obligations in light of God's laws, in light of what the true king has communicated uh, to him. And so as a theocratic king, 
to the degree that he is being faithful to his duties, we can see more clearly in his life how we all are supposed to live under God. It's a little more ambiguous to see that in a democratic king or a democratic prime minister, a democratic president. You never really know who they're taking orders from or what their values are. But in a properly functioning theocratic king, if you study his life, you should see more clearly what it means to live your life under the lordship of our king, of our God. So there's three leadership lessons that I would like to unpack for you in 1 Kings chapter 2 for you to consider and to apply to your own life. Here's the first one. A faithful leader's law code is God's law code. It's not a secret. It's not meant to be convoluted. It's not meant to be particularly profound. But we need to be reminded of this because so often we fail to understand that if we're going to be faithful leaders, we can't make up our own plays. We can't make up our own morality. We can't follow whatever authority happens to appeal to us in the moment. A faithful leader's law code must always be God's law code. The moral commands, the statutes, the rules, the principles that the king that you represent has given to us. So here we have in verse 1, the end of David's life. And the Bible tells us here, when David's time to die drew near, and by the way, yours is drawing near too. You might think, well, I got 50 or 60 years left. Well, it'll go by quickly. You may have six weeks, you may have 60 years. But the time will come when you find yourself in the exact same position that David found himself in. Dying. And in that process, instead of exercising fear and terror at the prospect of dying, David was focusing his attention on passing the baton, passing the torch to his son. And so he had certain things that he wanted to make sure his son understood. He commanded Solomon, didn't suggest, but he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die, in other words. Be strong. And show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord, your God, walking in his ways. And how do you do that? And keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. As it is written in the law of Moses, which is the entire body of scripture that he happened to have at the time. We're reminded that everybody dies. Now, on one hand, your greatest legacy is you. As you consider your own life, as you walk in integrity, as you walk in humility before God, as you conduct yourself in society properly, as you steward your household, as you steward your resources, Hopefully people will be able to look back at your life and say, he lived his life well. He, he left a legacy of Christ-likeness, of, of faithfulness to God. Your greatest legacy is you. I would like 
at the end of my life for people to be able to say, in spite of all his weaknesses, Aaron Rock blessed my life. He was faithful. He was consistent. He was a man with many failures, but he lived his life under the divine grace of God. Wouldn't you like for people to say that about you as well? Well done, my good and faithful servant. Not, oh, he was perfect. He was sinless. But he, had a, he has a legacy to leave behind, seen in his own value system, seen in his own life, seen in his, his relationships. So this, this must be a priority for us. But the second greatest legacy we will leave behind is the next generation is those we have impacted. So fundamentally, I will one day stand before an audience of one, God, and I will give an account for my life, and I need to live with a conscientious understanding of that. But I don't want to just get to heaven and say, man, Lord, I made it. I was faithful. I want to be able to leave behind a blessing to you, to my sons, to my daughters, to my grandchildren, both biological and spiritual. David understood this. At the end of his life, he wasn't complaining about his aches and pains. He wasn't talking about where to find the key to the safe to read the will. He wasn't focusing on these mundane temporal things. He, He wanted to take his son back to the thing that matters the most. He wants to make sure that Solomon gets his source of authority right his law code right. David wants Solomon to be successful. You should too. And frankly, it should be super obvious in your life, not implied, not suspected. I think he loves God. I think she, I'm pretty sure she was concerned about her children. It should be obvious, as obvious as David's declaration here on his deathbed. And as he wanted to point his son to what really mattered in life, he is careful not to make the standard for his son's future conduct his conduct. But rather, he wanted to make sure that the standard for his son's conduct was God's word, which is referred to here as God's charge meaning instruction. He wants Solomon to be a strong man, a biblically strong man. I'm sure you would agree with me in a culture like ours, we need more strong men. But we need to qualify that. Biblically strong men, especially in leadership roles. Men that don't make the mistake of substituting their financial wealth for biblical strength, or their physical wealth for biblical strength, or their position in society for biblical strength, but rather who have a biblical strength that is granted to them by God. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the culture within which we live and the messages that you hear on a regular basis, subtly and not so subtly. seems to me they're becoming far less subtle. Evildoers are just telling you what they think. You don't have to guess. In our culture, you will constantly hear subtly and not so subtly messages that will seek to define you by your externals. In other words, if you want to be successful, 
If you want to be a strong man, you need to accumulate as much wealth as you possibly can. If you want to be a strong man, you need a position of significance and influence. If you don't lead others, if you're not the the top dog, if you're not the boss, you're kind of a loser. You need a position that demonstrates your strength. You need to pursue endless years of schooling and accumulate those degrees and certificates and certifications if you really want to be a meaningful, strong man. Your physique needs to look like Superman. If you really want to be a meaningful guy, these are the messages that our culture subtly and not so subtly communicates to young men all the time. Dumbing down the mind, paying no attention to the soul, very little emphasis on character. But if you got the externals in place, you're a strong man. Well, that's not how God's word describes a strong man. As David is speaking to Solomon, and by the way, David was a rather tough cookie. I mean, he was a consummate warrior on the battlefield. He wasn't shooting guns from 100 yards away. This guy was out slinging a sword. In battle after battle after battle and was never taken down. He was a tough cookie in terms of his physical strength. But he doesn't talk about that with his son. He's like, son, you know, I, I want to make sure you're at the gym every day working out. I want to make sure you have as much wealth as possible. That's not, what he, that's not how he defines strength. A strong man walks with God by keeping his commands. Now, here is a, a, a truth that we hear in God's word that is often buried under a pile of excuses as people think about strength and influence. A strong man is always, always, always under authority. Specifically, God's authority. A strong man is always under authority. A lot of men who want to be strong think that the key to strength is to be out from under authority. While you're making hundreds of decisions a day, little ones and big ones, and you're bound at some point to trip up if your source of authority is me, myself, and I. But when you live your life under the authority of God, whether you are a king under the king, a mom under the king, a pastor under the king, a factory worker under the king, a greenhouse worker under the king, or a judge under the king. When you live your life under the king and under his sovereign rule, he speaks truth into your life. And when you listen to his truth, you will not err. But if you're not under his authority, you will inevitably fail. God's commands to us in this text are described using four different words. Statutes, commandments, rules, and testimonies. We don't need to make much of the difference between those. They're essentially synonyms for the whole of God's word, which comes to us in various forms. Commandments, statutes, rules, testimonies, later Psalms, Proverbs, gospel, epistle, apocalyptic literature. God has communicated truth to us in a variety of genres. But it's all instruction from God. And these laws that God has given to us are meant to regulate and inform life and worship. 
which by the way is one and the same. Life and worship for the Christian is one and the same. The way you build things is worship if it's done for the glory and honor of God. The way you drink, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, the Bible says, do all to the glory of God. Life and worship are one and the same. There's no dualism. There's no separation between the two. And God's statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies are meant to govern our lives. So here we have this king who eventually would distinguish himself as being of global importance. Kings from all over the earth would come and listen to him. It's a smart cookie. But he, he was told from the beginning, you need to remain under authority. Now, I want to I wanna make an observation about our culture. We live in what, what I would call a dualistic culture, a culture that separates things that needn't be separated. And one of the places we see this is in the separation of character and competence when it comes to the tasks and duties of life. We live in a culture that's very, very content separating your character from your competencies. This notion that your personal life doesn't matter. So suppose you're a police officer. As long as you can do the duties, your personal life doesn't matter. It's no one's business but yours. You're the prime minister. You're the president. You're a member of the royal family. Your personal life is your personal life. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're a fornicator, a liar, a cokehead. As long as you can perform the duties, as long as you're competent to perform the duties, that's okay. We've, we've created this mindset that as long as you can do the job, your character, your source of authority, your moral basis, your law code, it doesn't matter. Well, you, you, you can hide behind this dualism only for so long. But after a while, your worldview starts to leak through. Your law code starts to leak through. If you're a disaster with your children, eventually you're going to be a disaster in your career. If you're a disaster in your marriage, eventually you're going to be a disaster in the pulpit. You can only hide it for so long. If you believe that you can separate your character from your competencies, your life is eventually going to fall apart. And yet we see this in the lives of officials, of royalty, of teachers, of politicians, people that we're supposed to respect. Well, just respect them because they can do the job. But, we, but I don't trust their character. See, character matters. Everyone leads, and you can only hide for so long. Everyone leads and exercises their duties, their competencies, if you will, based upon the authority that they follow. And if your authority is me, myself, and I, it's going to be quite obvious after a short period of time that you are not a benevolent leader. You are a selfish leader. If you lead based upon a moral code that comes from wetting your finger and sticking it in the air to see which way the wind is blowing, the latest trends Eventually, your nation, your church, your family will end up in absolute chaos. Are you connecting the dots? 
You see, everyone has a law code that they follow. Perhaps you learned it from listening to the Howard Stern show. Maybe you learned it as a student in the social science faculty at the University of Windsor. Maybe you learned it in state-run public schools. Likely all of us did, at least on some level. Maybe you learned it from the latest Netflix series you just binge-watched. All of us have a law code. The question is, is it consistent and based upon the eternal law code of God, or is it based upon the latest and greatest thing, the will of the people, the democratic establishment, the state-funded public school? The truly faithful leader will always take his cue from God's word, and if he doesn't, he will be a disaster. To himself and to those that he or she leads. And so as you find yourself in a position of influence, God's advice to us is make sure that you align yourself with the commands, the statutes, the rules, and the testimonies of God. That's not a secret, but unfortunately it's been buried under a hodgepodge of leadership, manuals, political theories, we look around at our culture and like, how's that working out for us? We're not becoming more organized in our marriages, more peaceful, more united. Divorce rates aren't going down. People aren't being more faithful. Families aren't more stable. Countries aren't more stable. The world is a disaster. In a large part, that is because people have strayed from the word of God. There's a message here, not just for the king, but there's a message for every single person who leads another. And again, we all have different domains of influence. Your domain of influence might, might be just over your dog or your cat or your goldfish because you're a child. Or it might be over several hundred people in a corporation that you manage. Or it might be over your wife or your children. But we all lead. And our law code needs to be God's law code. Secondly, a leader is blessed when obedience, the external manifestation of conformity to God's word, and heart, the internal reality of obedience to God's word, align. When obedience and heart align, there is blessing that flows from that. In the middle of verse 3 and onward, the Bible says that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. I'm sure David said that with pain because he understood that several of his sons had strayed and had lost their lives for it. But here he had. Solomon, and he knew that this was the man that God had appointed to the throne. And he wanted to make sure that he understood that external conformity to God's word is not sufficient. God also cares about the heart, the internal aspect of our humanity described here as your heart and your soul. Now you've, you've all heard statements 
to the effect that uh, some people are very, very skilled, very naturally talented in, in certain areas of life. That person has a green thumb. What does that mean? It means they just, they, they can grow anything. They just have a, an ability to make anything grow. Or you might have heard this statement. It seems that everything he touches turns to gold. This is a mind for business, a mind for entrepreneurship. Just knows how to take nothing and turn it into something. Well, the same applies to the man or woman who obeys God. Blessings flow because God equips you with the skills, the know-how, the ability to live your life successfully. Not because some guru told you how to live, but because God told you how to live. Sometimes that prosperity is literal material prosperity. You conform your life to God's economic standards and lo and behold, your economic standards increase. Surprise, surprise. Missionaries used to teach this. I, my first degree, I minored in missiology, the study of foreign missions. And there's a principle in missiology called the principle of redemption and lift. When you go into a culture a non-Christian culture, and you start to preach the gospel. People come to faith, and you instruct them in the things of God. Obviously, at some point, you're going to talk about economics, money. You start to instruct these people on how to handle their money according to God's laws. And as they are redeemed, they are also lifted economically. They generally hop up one economic strata in their society. It's like surprise, surprise. God's plans for how you conduct yourself nationally and individually, and of course, in the life of the church, when it comes to money management, surprise, surprise, they actually work. They lift people out of poverty. They, they increase the wealth of a family. They increase the wealth of a nation. Surprise, surprise, who would have thought it? I thought God was trying to hold us down. There was times when God will bless materially, but even when he does not, because some people that are very godly die poor, God always blesses spiritually. Now we here are in the Old Testament and we're right in the thick of the old covenant and we have a theocratic king. And under this particular covenant, the blessing, the manifestation of blessing that God had promised to David was in the form of the guarantee of hereditary monarchy. So the deal was, David, if you and your sons walk in my ways, your dynasty will not go extinct like Saul's, who didn't even make it one generation. But rather, there will always be someone on the throne of Israel, a hereditary monarchy with endless generations of sons sitting on the Davidic throne, a monarchical legacy. Well, here we are in a room where you know, none of us are kings, none of us are queens. We live in a very different context and culture. Like it or not, we live in a democracy, which, of which, of course, there are huge benefits and there are also some major challenges. The Lord hasn't guaranteed us that we will have biological sons that sit on some throne over some nation someplace. But he always blesses us in keeping with his will for our culture and our time. And we're reminded here then that our obedience can never be external. If we want the full blessings of God, if we want God to turn on the tap of his blessings in our lives, 
then we need to learn to follow him, not just externally, but also to conform our hearts and our souls to him, to fall in love with God once again. It always involves the heart. The specific language of this text is with all their heart and with all their soul. Now, it seems to me that Jesus said something about that. Now, people like to draw uh, this radical divide between the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the, the Old Testament. It's a false false dualism. God has always desired external obedience and internal obedience. He's always desired that we would follow his laws and obey him, but he certainly isn't interested in creating a room full of posers who on the outside pose, pretend, act out a certain moral value system with no heart attitude. Now, we all know that sometimes Obedience seems to come before the heart. Sometimes the heart comes before obedience. Sometimes we're like, I just really want to obey. Sometimes we're like, I don't feel like obeying, but I'm going to obey. And after I obey long enough, I feel like obeying again. So sometimes obedience comes first. Sometimes like external obedience, or sometimes it's the heart and other times it's vice versa. But the laws of God are ultimately intended to change our hearts. I want you to be aware of this dynamic in your own life. I would presume that many of you here are orthodox, small o, straight, straight way. You follow the straight way. You you believe in the Bible. You know what the Trinity is about. You know what the second coming is all about. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. You, You believe the right things. But perhaps some of you believe it because, well, Pastor Aaron told us that's what we're supposed to think. Or that's what my, my parents told me I'm supposed to do. Or that's what my denominational heritage instructed me in. Or that's what's trendy. You know, the latest podcaster, I just, just love how he puts words together. So that's what I believe what I believe. Sadly, many Christians who are part of the visible church have clearly not internalized God's word. And we must internalize God's word. Your heart needs to keep up with your head or you're in trouble. If your heart does not keep up with your head, if your soul is not being humbled and tenderized by God, if your love for God is not increasing, but you're a knowledgeable person, ultimately you will become a failed leader. How many pulpits have been filled by men that are competent pulpiteers who later fall apart, abandon the Christian faith, run off with a woman next door? How how many stories have we seen of that? How many Christians have we seen come into our own church over the past 20 some odd years that have served and attended our essentials classes and become ministry partners and preached and taught in our small groups and other venues that are no longer walking with Christ. The Lord does not just expect you to conform to his doctrinal standards, but he also wants you to give him your heart and to love him with all of your soul, to subscribe to positions, to propositions without internal change. That doesn't put you any further ahead than the demons. The demons know the truth. They're certainly not transformed by it. Truth is always meant to transform us. And by the way, if you're interested in the study of wisdom, 
Truth that transforms is wisdom. That's wisdom. It must come from obedience and knowledge of God's word. But it needs to trickle down into an effective change in our hearts and in our souls. How do you develop that, by the way? How do you, if you're more of a cerebral Christian, how do you develop in the internal dimensions of your life? Well, one of the most fundamental ways is through prayer. We pray. We pray that God would tenderize our hearts. We spend time with people who have tender hearts and learn from them. We meditate upon God's word. We, we, we memorize the word. We mull it over. When we're driving along, we're making connections between what we've heard and a situation we may find ourselves in an hour from now. We discuss it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it instructs the godly parent to talk about the word of God all the time, whether you're walking, whether you're by the gate, whether you're on the road. Your worldview should be woven into every conversation you've ever had. You should be constantly talking. I'm not talking about, what what I'm not suggesting is that you're around the dinner table and the entire time you're just eating and reading the Bible out loud. That would be strange and probably impossible to do. But in the course of conversation, you're evaluating the family, your marriage, your hospitality, your interaction with others, your education, your pursuits, everything from a Christian perspective. I emphasize this because I happen to know that that's pretty rare in most Christian families. I've counseled enough people, and it's, it's a weird thing. When I hear of people that are Christians that know the word of God and teach, maybe even preach in the churches I've been part of, and then you're, you're preparing their children for marriage, and you're in premarital counseling, and you're talking about family of origin issues, and you discover mom and dad only talked about the word of God on Sundays. It just was not. It was just not part of our daily life. Well, right there, you're creating a dualist. You're creating someone that somehow lives in two worlds, that thinks the Christian life is a Sunday morning only experience. And the rest of a life we dedicate to our quote-unquote secular pursuits. It never works. We have to be talking about and meditating upon the word of God over and over. And then finally, in our worship. You know, in our worship, the Lord, I don't know why God has designed us this way, but we all know that it's true, that the Lord somehow takes truth and he buries it deep inside of us when we sing it. When we sing songs that are true, it bury, helps to bury the word of God deep in our hearts and in our minds. So in our worship life, we need to be speaking things that are true and singing things that are true. I was talking to a very dear, very close friend this week, and he was telling me, he lives out of town, he was telling me that uh, he was in his workshop and he just broke down in tears. And he said, they weren't, they weren't tears of sorrow. I was just thinking about and meditating upon the grace of God, which he's known for decades, but it it gripped his heart and it humbled him. And we need more of that, not just heady Christians, but ones that can lead because the word of God is part of their affections as well. Well, here's the third truth. A leader exercises justice. 
A leader exercises justice. Now, I, I want to warn you that this next passage is going to make some of you feel uncomfortable. I hope, by the way, that you're comfortable feeling uncomfortable at times when you read God's word, because generally when we're uncomfortable, it's because we're misaligned with what God thinks. So it does make us uncomfortable at times when we hear or read or see things we didn't expect to see in the word of God, but that's only because we've been taught falsehood or half-truths. So there's some stuff here that's going to make us feel uncomfortable when it comes to the exercise of justice. So what is justice? Moreover, David says, you also know that Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did, did to me what he did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel. Okay, so now we know we have as our lead character, a general of the army, and somehow he mistreated other generals of the army. What happened? Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. Well, isn't that what soldiers do? Don't generals kill other people on the battlefield? I mean, what's going on here? Listen to this next statement. Avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war. So this is, a, this is an aspect of our ethical understanding of the legitimacy or illegitimacy of taking human life. And putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. And before we go any further, you might initially find it inconsistent for Solomon to punish a man with death for the crime of taking another's life. Like, isn't that kind of inconsistent? Didn't Jesus say we should turn the other cheek? We should carry the soldier's luggage two miles instead of one, which they're required to do by law. We should, if someone slaps us on the cheek, we should turn the cheek so they could slap us again with their potty hand. Aren't those, aren't those words from Jesus himself words that would drive us towards radical passivity in the face of physical violence? Well, no. No, no, no. The words of Jesus are in the context of persecution and physical inconvenience and physical assault from someone who is tyrannizing you or persecuting you because of your stance for Christ. Jesus is pushing us towards an individual ethic within which our first response to persecution, to insults, is peace for the sake of the kingdom of God. But what that passage is not teaching is that the Christian or the believer should stand passively by and allow Jews to be shoved into gas chambers or armies to invade other nations and snuff out the lives of the innocents for their own selfish gain. You might be interested in knowing that in the word of God, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible specifically, unlike in English, which has a very limited number of words that pertain to the taking of human life, we have to add all these additional words, manslaughter, intentional, unintentional, first degree, second, we have to add all these words 
The Hebrew is actually more explicit. The Bible differentiates between harag, the killing of a human, and ratzak, the murder of a human being. In Exodus chapter 20, when we're told not to murder, it does not say thou shalt not kill. That's a mistranslation. It says thou shalt not murder. Now, if you have a problem with that, you can have a problem with the pre-Mosaic law. Because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, before the Mosaic law was given, before we were in the heart of the old covenant, God said to all people, this is before there were even nations, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. That's a transcultural commandment from God. Prior to the flood even, which mandates capital execution for someone that murders another human being. In fact, God capitally executes sinners. It's called hell who have transgressed his laws and have not repented. This is actually an aspect of biblical justice. Sometimes biblical justice involves the taking of life. And that's why I told you I'm going to make some of you uncomfortable. In Romans chapter 13, it portrays the righteous king as the one who carries the sword. That's not a letter opener. That's a sword. That's a symbol of justice who penalizes the evildoer and rewards the righteous. So here we have that teaching found pre-Mosaic and also under the new covenant being applied by David through Saul to people that had violated God's laws. Joab was permitted by God in war, within the boundaries of war to take life. He was not permitted in times of peace, just to snuff out and execute his adversaries in any way that he saw fit. So David says then to Solomon, act therefore according to your wisdom. In other words, the timing, the exact methods, you know, there's, that's, that's based upon your uh, monarchial uh, position and wisdom. But do not let his gray head go down to Sheol. Sheol, by the way, sometimes means hell. Uh, an abode separated from God. Here it means the grave. In peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. By the way, here we see the, the theocratic king doing exactly what Romans 13 commands the deacon king of Romans 13 to do. He is penalizing the evildoer, and he's rewarding the righteous. That's very different than a tyrant. You know what a tyrant does? He penalizes everyone. The tyrant king penalizes everyone. You, don't want, you do not want to live under a tyrant king. He penalizes the evildoers, sometimes rewards them, and he penalizes the righteous. By the way, one of the roles of the righteous is to hold the Davidic king or the theocratic king to account. Nathan did that with David when David transgressed God's laws and slept with Bathsheba. The clergyman confronts the politician. Here, Solomon is going to exercise justice by making sure that Joab was put to death and he's going to reward those that were loyal to the theocratic king. 
For his loyalty, they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse. Like, okay, now David's getting kind of personal. Like, really? He's not thick-skinned enough. He's got to have some guy put to death that called him a name. I'll read on. That cursed me with a grievous curse on the day that I went to Mahanaim, And when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Now, David here is portrayed as God's man. He is the righteous ruler. And because he was appointed by God and anointed by God, Shammai when he cursed the king, was doing more than cursing David. He was cursing King David. There's a difference, by the way, between the office that you bear and the person that you are. My name's Aaron, but I'm also Pastor Aaron. Sometimes I'm interacting with you just as a fellow brother in Christ. And other times I'm interacting with you in my capacity as an elder in the church. And there's a difference between the two in terms of how we relate. For Shammai to curse David was far beyond a personal insult. It was to curse God. This was God's appointee. Think back to when David was in the wings, not quite king. He knew he was going to become the king, but Saul was the king, and Saul was constantly trying to kill him. You think, well, that'd be a good reason to snuff out Saul's life. But David refuses to kill King Saul because he was God's anointed king. Even though he was a bad one, he was still God's anointed king. So even though he didn't like the guy, even though the guy wasn't functioning in the way that he was supposed to be functioning, David still honored the position, even though the guy was frankly despicable. So David was consistent in his ethic. He was consistent before he was king, and he's now consistent at the end of his life. To curse God's theocratic king is to curse God. By the way, to curse Christ's bride is to curse Christ. To curse the word of God is to curse God. To imprison the ambassador of Christ is to imprison Christ. To penalize and persecute the man or woman of God is to persecute Christ. So our sins are not just against God. They are often against God's choice man, God's choice woman, or Christ's church. But at the same time, when you sin against Christ's church, or the pastors of Christ's church, or the people of Christ's church, you're sinning against God. Fortunately, the penalty for that under the new covenant is not death or most of us would probably be dead because at some point we lipped off to or cursed an authority that God appointed. So there's a lesson here pertaining to justice. Sometimes we think of justice simply as throwing the book at someone. I want that person to get justice. I want to throw the book at them. Not always. Sometimes justice is throwing the book at a person, but other times justice is liberating a person from a false charge or accusation penalizing the evildoer and rewarding the righteous. 
Solomon is called to penalize the evildoers who had either taken life unjustly or who had attacked God's theocratic king with curse words. And he is also called to reward the righteous. And by the way, if you're in a position of influence, you should be doing the same thing. You should penalize those under your care that are acting immorally, and you should bless and encourage those under your care that are acting morally. Whether it is your cat or your children or your church. These are one of the marks of a godly ruler, a godly leader to exercise biblical justice. Then David slept with his fathers, which is a euphemism for died and was buried in the city of David. David is a smaller area within the old city of Jerusalem in an elevated position. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And there you have it. Where the narrative ends is with a declaration that by doing what his dad told him to do, his kingdom was established. If you want your life to be established, if you want your marriage to be established, if you want your household to be established, if you want your personal legacy to be established, if you want your legacy to be established in the next generation, do what Solomon did. Ground your life on the laws of God. May God's word and his law code, his statutes, his rules, his commandments and his testimonials be yours. Be yours. Secondly, make sure that you've given him your heart and you give him your heart time and time again, much like in marriage. I'm a married man. I know what marriage is like. I've been married for almost three decades. You're always conscious of your wife's presence. You're always conscious of your husband's presence. You're always aware that you're married. You may say, I'm always faithful to the covenant, but sometimes you kind of forget about the need to demonstrate affection and to build affection for your spouse by thinking about her in her absence, by praying for her, even when you don't feel like it, by being kind to her, or in the case of a woman, by being respectful to her husband. It's not enough to just say, well, we're married. I've never cheated on her. That's not enough. My wife wants more of that. She wants my heart, my soul. And so does God. We must give our hearts and our souls to God, not just obey him externally, but also to love him internally. And then finally, to be people of justice, to be people who are willing to mete out penalties for those that have transgressed and bless those that are in obedience. And if you're young and you're not yet in a particularly authoritative position, You need to learn to submit, for instance, to your parents because the time will come very soon 
when you will be responsible for other people as well. So sometimes you might feel like you're in a position where you're always the one being ruled or governed. And you resist that. But bear up because the lessons that you're learning as a follower will bide you well when the day comes for you to be a leader. These are lessons for all of us. Obey God. Love God. Walk in justice. Are these characteristics that you are known for? Let's pray that they are. 